My name is Dr. Joel Rosen. I am the Stress Recovery Ninja, and I am super excited to introduce my guest here today, Dr. Alan Christensen. He is the New York Times bestseller of two great books, The Adrenal Reset Diet that he published in 2015, and his most recent book, The Metabolism Reset Diet, that he just recently published at the end of January. And Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic physician. He's a father of two kids, and he's happily married to the woman of his dreams for over 20 years. And uh, I'm really excited that you're here, Dr. Allen. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Dr. Rosen. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, um, I've been in the adrenal fatigue space for a while. And a little bit of me, I won't say was jealous when you came out with your book, The, uh, the Adrenal Reset Diet. Um, I was a little envious, right? Because I thought, like, number one, it was a great concept, and um, and number two, my book's been published in my head for the last twenty years. But we still, <laughs> you know, got to get it to, to print. But anyway, um, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your story? Uh, because you do have an interesting background, and I, I don't know if everyone that is on the line will have heard about that. And what got you into this area of healthcare? You know, I laughed about your comment because I've. I've published countless books in my head over the years that never made it any further, so I completely resonate with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, was a, I was a nerdy kid who was way into Carl Sagan and space science and the Apollo missions and all that stuff. And um, I was oblivious to the fact that I was really unhealthy because I knew nothing different. Um, I had complications from cerebral palsy, some, some seizures and a lot of movement disorders. Um, but I was honestly pretty isolated and happy in my head and in my books. And <laughs> somewhere around adolescence, the social world reared its ugly head. And I realized there was more to life than what was going on in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, and I really got to feel just, I guess, the sting of what it was to have your body not work the way you wanted. And things that I learned from reading different books that talked about health topics just, just changed my life. And I, over the years, I came to, you know, lose a bunch of weight and regain some coordination. And um, I've, I've always had ongoing struggles. I still have a lot to, to manage orthopedically, but, uh, you know, things change immensely. And it was kind of odd because, uh, you know, I had a lot of well-intentioned doctors that worked with me for various things, but it wasn't really their stuff that changed it. It was the stuff from the health books. And so I had the experience on just how transforming your health would just completely shift your whole experience in life and how information could do that if you would find the right data and stick to it and give it some patience that, you know, the sky was the limit. So it was pretty powerful stuff to soak in and it really set my arc to be in a space like you are of being a health expert and trying to help others make that journey themselves. Awesome. So, so what made it, what transformed you to get into this as a profession? What was the, what was that sort of aha moment that made you do that? You know, funny thing, it was all along, that was like my, my obsession. And my first, my first job, I guess, was working in a food cooperative in Northern Minnesota. We have food co-ops in like every neighborhood and, you know, so like bulk foods and natural foods. That was like, I guess our, our version of what a whole foods is to society back then, you know? <laughs> so I was the clerk in there that told people what herbs to get for their runny nose or whatever else. 
And it just grew from there. I thought I didn't really get about how to make it into a career exactly. My first thought was just, you know, conventional medicine. And then I would just incorporate these things more on the side and keep on learning. And the closer I got to that, uh, mentoring doctors let me understand that you can't do that. You know, you can have good intentions, but if what you're doing is not within your scope of practice, you lose your license. You get in trouble for that. So I was a bit disillusioned. And then I learned about the naturopathic profession and it was a, it was a good fit. It was, I wanted more of a training in internal medicine and to be able to have uh, some practice in those realms. But I wanted to be part of a community that supported me in focusing on the relevance of lifestyle. So, so yeah, I just fell into place that way. And then how long, Alan, were you into uh, practice before you came out with your, with your first book? <laughs> That's why I laughed because it was far too long. You know, I, I published a lot of head. I'm going to use that for you, but by the way, now I, I published a lot of books in my own head for a good decade before they ever came out on paper. Right. I you know I started, I started the first one within my first year and I put probably 40, 50,000 words into it and never finished it. So that would have been a, a, a material medica of Ayurvedic medicines, believe it or not, that never saw the light of day. But no, it was probably, so I guess the, the first conventionally published book was The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. And it was published in 2011. And I've been practicing since 96. So yeah, 15 years. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So what, I guess the question I would like to know is um, in, in the adrenal reset diet, and now you have the metabolic reset diet. I guess it, it, what would be the big difference between the two if the adrenals are, in the way I look at it, is a, a broken stress response, um, which ultimately impacts your metabolism. Um, but then on the other hand, the adrenal reset diet is specific to that. So can you speak to a little bit about the uniqueness between the two? Yeah, awesome questions. The adrenal reset diet, you know, as you said, it's really a, a method to, <clears throat> excuse me, regain that healthy cortisol cycle back again. And that's the strategy's real focus. The metabolism reset diet, <clears throat> excuse me, um, yeah. that was an extension of a protocol that we've used for treating diabetes in the clinic for many years. And I came to realize that, you know, people are always happy about not needing to be on medications and no longer being diabetic but they were really happy about losing three dress sizes in a month. <laughs> that was like the big excitement. <laughs> no judgment. Whatever's better is better. You know, totally cool. But then also I started learning more about just how this fatty liver thing was overlapping with most everyone that was having struggles with weight and energy. And, you know, the story about it and diabetes and its overlap in many other conditions. So, yeah, I wanted to bring that message out. And honestly, it could have been, uh, could have been liver reset. That could it was, it was a close thought because it really is a story about the liver's role and all these things. Yeah, and so and then you and I talked a little bit beforehand so that we can approach the adrenal fatigue uh, controversy. And and so I guess the question I would ask you is is that um, what's your take on what now that even you have a book called you know the adrenal reset diet. Um, what's your take on explaining to your, your, your patient um, versus, I guess, your peers, um, what adrenal fatigue really is, if there's so much controversy with that actual term? What's your take on that? Yeah, awesome question. Great thing to clarify. So if I could start from scratch, I would probably call this 
adrenal stress, adrenal dysfunction. Um, medical literature calls this phenomenon HPA dysregulation, uh, HPA dysfunction, bit of a mouthful. I've actually used HPAD before as an abbreviation. So there's just mountains of data that the body's circadian cycle as measured via circadian salivary cortisol levels is a big predictor of longevity, chronic disease, numerous symptoms, you know, just a lot of things that are important. And there's also mountains of data saying that this rhythm is also, it can be influenced by many facets of diet and lifestyle and mind-body therapies. So it's a real thing. It predicts health, it predicts symptoms. And a lot of the therapies that you talk about, they, they help that, they can improve upon that. So it's totally valid. Now, I think the pitfall was that the concept emerged in natural medicine as if it were a, I should back up a little bit. So we've got Addison's disease in which the adrenals are attacked by the immune system. It's just like a Hashimoto's of the adrenals rather than Hashimoto's of the thyroid. And the glands are beat up. They're not able to make enough hormone to meet the body's needs. And there's just a drop of their output. So that exists, no controversy. But a lot of folks in the alternative space talked about this adrenal fatigue thing as if it were like a milder version of Addison's and as if the adrenals were unable to make cortisol. And we know that we can see situations in which the adrenals are making little cortisol or too much or at the wrong time. They're all possible. But in those situations, the, the mechanism is quite different because the body is wanting them to make less. And just to, to back up a little bit, so we can measure what the brain's request is on the adrenals by a compound called ACTH, which is a simple blood test. And in the case of someone who has Addison's disease, when their cortisol levels are low, their ACTH is very high. Their brain's saying, hey, give me more cortisol. And the adrenals are saying, you know, no can do. We're, we're shot. We can't do that. But in the case of what's been called adrenal fatigue, they could have that same low level of cortisol, but their ACTH is low. <laughs> and so what's going on is, yeah, cortisol's low. The adrenals aren't broken. They're doing exactly what they're told. So the whole system is slowing down. You've got a car that's sputtering and you drive it slowly. You don't like floorboard it. You want to like coast into the garage to get it fixed. So that's what's happening in this adrenal fatigue state. And the disconnect has been that many in natural medicine have not understood that. And they've thought that, you know, if cortisol is low and that's a problem, just give cortisol or give things to raise cortisol. And in some cases that can help symptoms in the short term, the way that a lot of stimulants could short term, but the body's trying to do the opposite. So that's a disconnect. There's a real thing. It's a real phenomena that is influenced and it can correlate with these salivary cortisol levels, but the adrenals aren't broken. <laughs> they are working. They're being told not to. <laughs> so it's a great answer. There's a lot of, lot of things that I'd like to touch on. Number one, it's unfortunately, I'm from a traditional medical family. I'm the weirdo holistic guy, right? That, um, that looks at things with more holistic kind of... Um, uh, principles. Um, but I would like to talk about number one, the fact that the body's doing what it's supposed to do um, with an inappropriate amount of signals or stressors. Uh, and sometimes we, we go in there, especially like as the example of a thyroid patient, where if the body wants to slow down the uptake of oxygen into the cell, it's doing it for a reason. It's doing it in terms of what we call a cell danger phenomena. And, um, and then we look at the end result and we, we reductionistically, a lot of the times, tr try to fix the, the thing that the body's compensating 
um, for, but not really getting to the root cause of that. So that, that, that'd be number one that, that I would like to see. Then number two is um, I thought that adrenal fatigue, because I, I was really mad, Alan, when I found out that um, I had, not to, to brag, I mean, I was well studied. I had an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology, I had an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I just graduated with chiropractic college and lots of debt, exhausted, burnt out. My wife was pregnant with twins. I had just injured my back. Uh, you know, I moved to a new country, let alone a new, you know, a new state. And, um, and, and I was exhausted and burnt out. And that's where a patient of mine brought me Dr. Karazian's book, Why Do I Have Thyroid Symptoms Even Though My Blood Tests Are Normal? And when I opened up the page on adrenal fatigue, somehow they stole my picture and it was an exact replica of me of, you know, the (laughs) symptoms. Like, I've never heard of this. How have I never heard of this? I've never heard of adrenal fatigue. And so that really started the epiphany of what I want to do with my life. Because if I've never heard of this and that's what I'm feeling, how many other people must be feeling this also? And then I've just come to learn it's such a terrible name. Um, like you've mentioned, it doesn't actually get fatigued and it, it still mounts a response. Um, but there's so many other breakdowns that can be happening. Maybe the brain's not signaling it. And I even think HPA axis dysfunction does it a disservice because it doesn't talk about hormone conversion and it doesn't talk about cell membrane resistance and a whole bunch of stuff. So the original term that I thought would be great was with homeostasis with Hans Selye and and the whole body's alarm resistance and um, exhaustion phases, sort of homeopathos where it's lost its ability to maintain homeostasis is really what I thought would be a good term for it. But anyway, I guess the question I would like to ask is switching gears on your your new book. Um, You've talked about um, at the beginning sort of that guilty feeling that people have that may have slow metabolisms where they talk about, well, there must be something wrong with me. That person can do it easily, um, but I have to exercise more and, and watch everything that I eat. How, how much of what you teach, especially between the books and, and your private practice, gets into the perception of stress and how much that contributes to things? Well, it's a huge factor. You know, the perception of stress and stress is a big term. You know, for many people, uh, we often bucket stress as mental emotional stress, which is real and powerful. You've got the nasty boss or the difficult traffic or the, the partner that's not getting it or something, but Yes, stress as a blanket statement is a lot of ways the body's pushed out of balance. And I loved your comments about just how with HPA dysfunction, how over time it becomes habituated, that the body goes into that state just too readily, more quickly than it needs to, and comes out of it less quickly than it needs to. And yeah, big factor for all facets of health for sure. Okay. And, and then, um, as, you know, with your book, I think what's really great about it is you give people hope in terms of your metabolism isn't set. And, and you know, we, we've had friends when we grow up and they take their shirt off and they've never touched a weight and they already have, you know, a, a six pack and it is almost not fair, right? Um, but in your book, you give people hope that there are tools that they can do and rather quickly to get, to get their metabolism working for them. So maybe if we can give the listener a little bit of what are those tools, because they're probably at the edge of the seat wondering, I, yeah, I've had a slow metabolism, and if there's something I can do to fix it, I definitely want to do that. So what, what have you found in your research to, to be those tools? Yeah, it's an exciting thing. You know, it's really awesome when someone can go from 
having to always struggle to where they're, they're reset, they're fixed, their body works differently afterwards, and they are more like the friend they were jealous of before. You know, that's a cool change. Uh, we evolved this from protocols that were first studied, like, like we did for diabetes, they were first done for diabetes. The earliest protocols that we based this off of were using just liquid food and pretty small amounts. And we kept evolving to have a better understanding of how the liver worked in this. And so we included higher amounts of solid food, uh, good amounts of plant proteins. We highly incorporated resistant starch in this as well because good blood sugar regulation seems to be super helpful. And we built it around just doing uh, two shakes, one meal, and with some unlimited snacks. And the idea is that you go through this, this 20-day process and you know, you're not racking up 50 more rules to live by for life. You're having your body affect a real change that can stick with you afterward. But yeah, the format is two, two shakes, a meal, and there's certainly details that make all that more conducive to changing the liver. Yeah, and, and so as far as you've also talked about, you know, is there good food or is there bad food? And the liver is just a, a blind organ, if you will, where whatever information you give it, it's supposed to be flexible. And that's what, that's what I, I talk a lot about, too, with that homeostasis is the better you are um, to take on an allostatic load that moves you away from um, keeping the harmony in your body, um, the more flexible you will be at, at bouncing back. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about that, where it may not necessarily be a bad food per se or a good food per se, but it's more of getting that liver being able to be flexible enough to, you know, have that birthday cake when it's time to have that birthday cake. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's been a funny thing. I've seen, I was often tempted to think that there were certain villain foods or certain like savior foods. And the more I look at the data, like even like fructose, for example, processed fructose, I mean, for sure, too much of that's a bad thing, but is it inherently toxic or is it some quantity? And even like the, the, the idea about fructose being a driver for fatty liver, and it's mostly animal studies, but what they showed is that you can take a rat and give them their full supply of rat chow and tag on a bunch of fructose on top of that, and now they get fatty liver. But you take that same rat and you subtract 20% of the rat chow and replace that with fructose, no more fatty liver. And I, I saw all the struggles between you know, carbs, fats, ketones. Is there one of these that's the magic savior? Is there one that's the evil thing we've got to like expunge from the face of the earth? And none of it really panned out. And biochemically, all those things to your liver, they're all just oxaloacetate at the end of the day. So whatever they are, they just break down to the same molecule. So the thought was, yeah, how do we change it? And how do we really repair its ability to store and release fuel? There's two pathways there. Whenever we take in food, we never we eat a meal and we eat certain times per day, but we never burn that whole meal when we consume it. You know, we're always burning it over the following period of hours or days even. And so the liver has to take in and store that. And that's cool. That, that part pretty much always works, but then it's got to be able to retrieve that effectively and take that stored fuel out and let the body utilize that for energy later on. And the problem is, which should be a, a two-way flow becomes heavily exaggerated to in but not out. And so even without consuming inappropriate amounts of food, whatever comes in is stored, but too little can come out. And over time, that can cause a buildup of fat inside the liver itself. Not even the belly fat, even worse than that, but fat inside the liver itself. 
Yeah, and you talk about that where for some reason, I don't even think it's just with, with weight loss alone, the liver is not thought of as the organ or the gland that will, will support weight loss. But I think in general, it's the most underappreciated organ because of all the things that it does. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that, you know, between uh, physician and scholars and lay people, the liver is just thought of as burning alcohol and detoxifying from chemicals. Why is it not thought of in terms of all the other metabolic processes that it does? Yeah, it's a good question. And the funny thing is that glands, you can see how, how much they compensate and then how evident their damage is. And the paradox with the liver is that it's so resilient and regenerative that it can take a pretty severe degree of damage before there's always obvious signs of that. And it can be, you know, you think about like the, the duck that's paddling in a stream, you don't know how fast the stream is moving. You know, the duck might be paddling really hard, you know, or it might barely be coasting, you know, and the liver's like that. So it can be working really hard to keep things stable and things appear stable. But then finally, when it passes some threshold, we see more obvious signs of disease. And there's a lot of examples to where problems with the liver if you know how to look for it, you can see them earlier along, but the way they're often defined, we're not seeing them until they're pretty ways progressed already. So for that reason, we often underappreciate how important it is to maintaining homeostasis. Yeah, and I, th I think that there's a lot of uh, commensuration that needs to happen with lab values as it relates to glucose, um, as it relates to liver, um, because unless they're super, super high and past that second standard deviation where there's a lot of damage that's already been done, um, the traditional approach is to say everything looks good and nothing's wrong. Um, maybe, maybe speak about that, and not to put you on the hot seat, but are you finding there a big disconnect with people that have obvious problems, and even if it's liver conversion from T4 to T3, or low glutathione levels, or whatever you may see that can be indicative of even if they're at 32 and the lab ranges are above 40 or 60, um, maybe speak a little bit about what you're seeing with um, some of the shortfalls or pitfalls of um, what's being missed with the traditional approaches. Yeah, and the funny thing is that the data that I'll cite is conventional data. You know, it's not from the Granola Times. There's hard data on this from conventional literature, uh, the most common liver markers are called liver enzyme tests. And pretty much all of your listeners that have blood tests get their liver enzymes checked as part of that. They're very routine. And of those, the alanine aminotransferase for the ALT is most central to liver function. There's a lot of examples where people look at lab values and say, oh, you should be in the middle. And many say the functional range is in the, the tight middle. And, you know, what, you, I can see the arguments both ways. But in the case of the ALT, there's just no debate amongst liver specialists that you can be in the range and still have a problem. So in terms of numbers, you just mentioned how most labs will say low 40s, low 60s. I often see like 63 is the upper limit for ALT in our area. But I still see cases where people are above that and doctors say it's fine, nothing to worry about. So that's a problem. But within the range, if you're a woman and you're above 19, there's something wrong with your liver. All the specialists get that. They line up strongly on that. And many things can cause that, but barring some of the less, uh, less common causes, we think about this fat congestion, this early fatty liver as being the main culprit. 
Yeah, and I guess we could take that a lot of different ways, but that was a great answer. As far as, far as you know, with when you're finding people that, um, okay, I get it, uh, my liver's a big problem. How many people do you see that just aren't prepared to run a marathon when they haven't even put on sneakers to go ahead and do the analogy is go ahead and do some major liver cleansing and then really crash after that. How often do you see that and why is that even happening? Well, so that's a great point. So there's a lot of ways you can just eat less or just force your body to detox hard that could be well intended, but you know, have just no, no lasting benefit or a lot of short-term harm. And it's a lot easier to force things on your liver than it is to heal your liver. And so it's tempting to be aggressive in an approach and do like an extreme food restriction, for example. And in that case, you might mobilize a lot of stored fat, in which case you release a lot of stored toxins. But if you're also undernourishing the liver because of low amounts of protein or micronutrients, your liver is working harder than ever, but it's the less supported that it's ever been. So it won't really effectively eliminate those ways. It'll just rearrange some things and make you feel worse for a while and not improve anything. Or there's a lot of herbs or nutrients that can speed up parts of the liver's function, but same thing, they'll, they'll cause more waste to circulate, but not so much get packaged up and leave the body. And that's the pitfall is how do we make sure that what's happening is towards a positive end. And in general, the more, the more awful you feel, the more you got to question whether it's a good idea. <laughs> when it's done right, it shouldn't be all that dramatic. <laughs> right. And, and, and like we talked about earlier, the good news is that the liver being such a metabolically active uh, gland and organ, um, it doesn't take long, which you mentioned in your book. So, so tell us a little bit about how quick you can see, you've seen changes with the people that you work with when you start to implement the right, the right uh, steps. You know, it's, it's always so exciting to me how quickly the body can bounce back into health when it's given half a chance. Uh, we'll see changes in waste, uh, blood sugar symptoms. Very commonly, first week, first couple of weeks, a month into it, the normal change is about two and a half inches of waste reduction and very commonly reversal of diabetes, prediabetes, but the body works quickly. And uh, I really expect people that with their first week into it, they will already know to what extent this will be a useful thing for them. There are some to where they'll go longer than that before seeing some clear benefits, but that's unusual. In most cases, it's just even the first week, energy starts to pick up and mental clarity and some clear sizes, size changes and less fluid retention happens. Awesome. Are you getting a lot of uh, great feedback from people that have gotten the book so far? You know, it's been awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, we've had about, I think, 17,000, 18,000 do the challenge with one of, our, one of our online groups in response to the book. And we've, we're expected to see things like the blood sugar get better, liver enzymes improve for those where they're high, um, triglycerides, uh, cholesterol, all that. And we've also come to expect a lot of inflammatory things to improve, uh, chronic arthritis, a lot of autoimmune disease, chronic infections do better. The thing that, that always makes me just the happiest, knowing, knowing this really is a different thing, is when someone says, hey, I did that challenge three months ago, and you know, I'm still I'm eating well. I'm eating kind of like I did before the challenge, but I'm still dropping a few pounds here and there and feeling great, and my body's working differently. So that, that's the coolest thing to hear of all is when someone says, hey, yeah, I, I did it. Now I'm doing my old habits, and it's working different than it did before. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's got sustainability. It's a, it's a verb, right? I mean, I always tell patients that health is a verb. And when you, your, your liver, liver when, you're, when you're doing more proactive things that are taking things out and having the liver work better than bad things that are putting things in, then you have a negative deficit, then you're going to continue that process of, of healing over the longer haul. Um, thank you so much for being there. A couple questions. Where do, where do they find you, uh, Alan? Where can they find your book and where do they find you and what kind of um, tools and, and, and do you have for, for the listener? Yeah, thank you for that. So where to find the book? That's easy. Wherever you get books. Uh, if you're blessed to have a nice independent local bookstore in your neighborhood, please give them some love. That's a good place to find it. <laughs> Otherwise, anywhere else that has books like Amazon has it readily available. In terms of where to find me, drchristensen.com is our main hub of all things. And in terms of tools, you know, each month we'll do a, a free challenge. We'll welcome people in that want to test out the metabolism reset and give them a full week of all the recipes, uh, cooking videos, and you know, guidance and through that. And if it makes sense, you're welcome to join for the remaining 21 days for all of it. But yeah, people can always go on the site and join us to that next challenge and see how it works for them. Awesome. And the book's called The Metabolism Reset Diet. And I always leave, uh, I know I, you've been interviewed by Dr. Lynch, and um, he, he always asks this, I, you can, you're feel free to take, you've had all those, these books published in your head for, for a long time. It's yours to keep. Um, as far as I took from him, if there's one or two things that you could do in the past that you know now that you didn't know then that would have ultimately made huge changes in your health, what would those have been? That I, in the past, that I know now that I didn't know in the past. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Boy, there's, <laughs> that's a tough one. You know, I think probably, wow, that's tricky. Yeah, I've gone so many, so many directions, attempted so many things over the years. Um, I think really just having a little more confidence in my body's own abilities. And I think early along, I had expectations of needing to manage and assist every part of it and not realizing how much it was able to fix itself, just given a bit of space and the right building blocks and some trust. So I think trusting the process more than I have been in the past. That's an awesome answer. We talked a little bit about that earlier, about the body knows more about the body than we know about the body. And it's doing things on, you know, in the way that it wants to based on the stimuli that you get. And if we can just get out of its own way and give it a little bit of nudging in the right direction based on sound philosophy and, and, and a perfect workup, um, then it's going trust in the process that it's a self-healing mechanism that's going to get better and better so hey thank you so much for being there here I, I really appreciate your 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 time and your your efforts and everything you do in the healthcare field it, it really is a an honor for you to be here and uh, I look forward to maybe reconvening with you again and to see all the great things that you have coming your way in the future so thank you so much thanks again for having me Dr. Rosen and really appreciate that I appreciate it as well thank you Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. 
We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen, and we'll talk to you soon.